we say that this is really important to me, but then our actions don't coincide with that. I think it starts, the more honestly you can assess things and then break them down, then you can have better plans and habits and support those bits and pieces. Because when you're trying to enact change, it usually requires a very extreme level of commitment for a period of time for that change to happen. And whether it's an intense block of time or a very long marathon. What are your best strategies to do that? I think that's always a practice that... You're listening to another episode of Success with Purpose, where we hold conversations with the most holistically successful people we have the opportunity to connect with. We explore their journeys, their life-changing events, their perspectives, their mindset, and most importantly, their purpose. I'm Harry Goldberg, host, interviewer, and interrogator of this podcast, father of the most incredible daughter in the world, husband of an incredible woman, and director and empowerment coach at Purpose Advisory. Hope you enjoy this episode. And don't forget to subscribe and like below. Now, let's begin. Ali, how do you define success? I think success is always been about doing what you love um, with people you love and then doing those things so that they have an impact. So I think that's probably my overarching perspective on success. I think five, six years ago, I probably defined success a little bit differently. I thought it was all just about achieving outcomes that you set for yourself and executing on those. Whereas now probably where I'm at in my life, it's more about, again, again, sounds a little bit cliche, but more about the journey, um, taking actions that are really aligned, you know, having a life, uh, living a life that's ticking a lot of different boxes, just not achieving, call it professional or career success, um, working on things like becoming a good husband and father. I think that's always a practice that probably isn't very natural to myself, maybe to most people. Um, I, I find it a lot easier just to set a goal that's very simple and then, well, not even simple, maybe has a perception of being complex, but achieving it when it's got steps that you need to follow that have been put forward in the past. Whereas I, I actually find maintenance a lot more difficult, which I think is largely relationships and parenting and the, the ongoing stuff. So to me, if I'm looking at success nowadays, it's getting better at those bits and pieces around nurturing and appreciating a lot of the things that are in my life that are great. So that's probably where I'm, so I guess, yeah, overarching. Is there such a clear distinction for you between the enjoying and enjoying the things you're doing with the people you love and getting better at those, especially nurturing versus setting a goal and sticking at it. Can you define the distinction? Yeah, it, it's probably, I think the more aligned you get with your values and your beliefs and if you're doing things that you really do love, a lot of that happens relatively organically, I've, I've found. Whereas there was times where probably in the past, and especially when you're trying to find yourself and figure out who you are a little bit more, where it's just a lot easier just to set a goal. And then you can go with the perspective that, hey, if I achieve this goal, it's going to lead to this, right? Like if I get this promotion at work, if I get this role, if I start this business, if we hit this revenue number, I'm going to feel a certain way. And I think that's probably more what I've learned. And you only maybe get that from going through that journey is that a lot of the times when I'd achieve some of those checkpoints, if I put too much weight on how it would make me feel, um, it was often very fleeting the enjoyment of it or largely disappointing because it doesn't actually result in those things when you do hit those expectations. But I, I think in a way you have to climb those mountains or your own little mountains 
to understand that. And then on the other side, you start reflecting like, all right, well, this year, you know, I remember even looking at it maybe four or five years ago, like I'd set goals at the start of the year and I would hit 80% of them or 90% of them or whatever it is. And I'm like, all right, well, on paper, this should, I should feel amazing. Like this should be the best result ever. I've just lived the best life I could possibly live. But then you actually dig into it a little bit deeper. But so much of it was based on those highs, call it, or those moments where you set an outcome and you try to achieve it. But a lot of the times there were other things that probably need to be focused on as well that we're getting forgotten about and not really looking at call it happiness holistically. Does that mm. make sense? No, that does make sense. So if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, you were really focused on your business and your career goals and feeling like if you're really successful professionally, then you were going to have this great elating feeling. It's going to feel awesome. Life's going to feel amazing. Yep. And each year you look back and you go, man, I achieved 80 or 90% of that. Why do I feel still feel so crap? Yeah. And yeah, and it's not even necessarily like feeling crap per se, but it's also just changing that viewpoint on just traditional forms of success, call it. Like I always find it such a difficult question when people are like hey how do you view success or who do you think successful or like what that word actually means because it's so relative to that individual right like for some people success will be waking up in the morning um for others it will be earning a billion dollars right mm -hmm. so it just can vary on so many different spectrums of what that looks like and that for me was the big thing it wasn't about you know not feeling good about achieving some of those things but just seeing how i could enhance that enjoyment as well and to add other bits and pieces um into my framework whereas things like business or call it career they're easy ones to measure call it you know i'll put in quotation marks success on right if you're getting promoted if your salary's increasing if your business revenues are going up you can track these things and you can be like hey i'm being very successful at these things but we know it just when you speak to so many people nowadays is you can be successful in your role in your career or in your business but what does that actually mean? Like, do you enjoy what you're doing? Do you enjoy the people that you're working with? Are you having a positive impact? Um, are you sleeping easy at night? Are you stressed out? Like, are you excited about the things that you're focusing on and that you're building? So I just started trying to find additional layers. So we're still doing a lot of the similar things, but maybe changing my perspective on what they were to enhance the enjoyment is that what started to change your perspective you saw people who you previously thought were really successful and you realized that they really weren't or not holistically either way for sure i think that was a big one especially when you start your learning journey and for most of us what we do is we try to find models right so you you find mentors or you read books or you watch movies and follow people on Instagram or LinkedIn or whatever it's going to be. If we go with the professional context and you're like, Hey, well, that's pretty cool what that person's doing. And it can be very easy to get sucked into that. If I, if I just end up becoming Elon or Brené Brown or whoever it is, I should be able to live the same perceived life. But then you dig into it a little bit deeper and then you say, Hey, well, even in their situation, like there's the, some bits that are good in their life. There's some bits that aren't really good. And I think it's also important to know that when, you're using these models is that you have to look at the entire picture. You can't just be like, oh, I want Elon's ability to be an entrepreneur, but then you also have to take everything else that comes with Elon, right? Which is how good is his family life? How good are his relationships? Um, how many hours does he work? Um, what's the controversy like for him in the media? 
And I think that's the easy thing when we're looking at these things is we just want one component often of these people that we look up to or we want to emulate, but without actually having a look at the whole picture. And I still haven't found anyone that I'd want to fully emulate. I might want bits and pieces from them, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, we just, I think for most people just want to be the best version of who we, we are of ourselves, right? Like we just want to express what we like doing, what we're interested into, who we want to be around. And to me, that's probably more what success is about when I see people just enjoying life, I think. And it's not often related to material success or professional success a lot of the times. Yeah. And so how do you manage the challenge of identifying the people where you really want parts of it, right? Like Bill Gates changing the world, doing amazing things. Some call him a little bit political, but whatever. He's been exceptionally successful and he's already changed the world in terms of technology and a whole bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. Yet, clearly it wasn't great for his marriage. Yeah. Who knows what his relationship's like with his kids. There's not much of yep. that in the media or to actually see it properly. Who knows yep. how much strain there's been from outside. So you might look at one person and go, wow, that person's incredible. I'd love that. And then you might want to also say, okay, I want to take those bits, but I don't want the rest of it. And I don't want that or that or that. Mm-hmm. But it's often that those negative parts or those parts which aren't doing so well are contributing to the success in the parts that you want in your life. That's right. They're often interrelated. <laughs> so because they're so interrelated, whenever you're looking for someone and going, man, I really love that bit and I want to incorporate it, how are you finding or how are you becoming successful yep. in applying that part of what you really want from their life into yours without taking all the bad with it? I think one of the things that you pointed out there is you have to look at it holistically, right? So it's it's very easy to just look at the upside of taking that person's attribute or their skill. Um, but one of the things that I'm often looking at is also what's the potential downside of executing this too, right? Um, like one of the people that I'll look at that I'll studied pretty deeply was Tim Ferriss, you know, and looking at his style. And I think he was somebody that was very good at things like, you know, productivity, time management, being very efficient, developing systems. But then I remember looking at his life back then. I'm like, I still don't think that this is going to be that happy a life. Like it's very isolated. It's very closed off. So there's other parts of that. And, and I found the same thing is when you try to execute a lot of the things out of the four hour work week, um, it can lead to becoming potentially more self-centered because you're so, you can optimize so many aspects of your life for efficiency that you actually miss a lot of other bits that are core to life as well. Um, so then it's just being open and being able to reflect, I think on, okay, as you test these things, as you try them, how do they fit with who you are would be my biggest bit of advice on that. So say if you are going to try to emulate Steve jobs or Oprah, um, which bits and how far are you willing to go down that path? And also to truly reflect on what it's going to also cost you to go down that path as well. But the beautiful thing is, is we've got so many amazing frameworks nowadays. Like you can really get an insight into these people. Whereas I think maybe 20 years ago, you'd only get the bits that they maybe wanted to share with the Hollywood producer type of viewpoint. Whereas nowadays, I think for the first time ever, we're getting such an open insight into a lot of these people that we try to emulate and follow. So there's a lot more authenticity, I think, in what happens with their journey. Well, there's forced authenticity, right? Oh, yeah, potentially, yeah. Or at least publicity. Publicity they don't want even more so, right? Yeah, well, people just, I think it's really hard to, yeah, just do the surface level stuff anymore and have people interested in it. 
that's not the time for it, right? Like people want to see the the true Instagram stories version mm. uh, before they really connect to people nowadays. And yet what they see on most social media accounts are completely curated images that's, of success. Of yeah, so if you can curate I, authenticity, well done. <laughs> I remember that, when product. I was really into social media in terms of presenting myself in a particular way, which I really want to be presented. I now mainly just use social media for professional purposes. Yeah. But beforehand, it was from a social perspective as well. And I remember being really inspired by, I heard someone say, have a look at your own social media profile as if you don't know who you are. And then try and think, what's that person's life like? And suddenly I realized I was jealous of my own life on social media. (laughs) I was jealous of myself. Look at all these amazing holidays and going out and having fun and and look, I'm happy in every single thing. It must be just a really happy life. And so, yes, I guess there's more authenticity, but there's also more curation out there. Yeah, well, it's uh, social media has become the modern age's ultimate ego stoker, hasn't it? It has. Like, it's, <laughs> it's amazing for us to just sit there and every single person has the opportunity to present their story and their billboard in whatever light they want. And most people will lean towards the side of showing the best bits. So it's probably pretty natural. Um, Yeah, I think it's, and it's interesting. I think also with sharing authenticity, especially with strangers, right? Like Brené Brown talks about being vulnerable and open. And I think it depends on where you're at in life, what you've got to share. Like sometimes we see it on social media as well. We can go the other way. Like people are so open. Mm Mm-hmm and authentic where it's like why why are you sharing this with everyone like do you need to share it with all of your followers is this something that needs to be there and i think it just relate it just depends on that person and that individual so again like with most things there's no hard and fast rule there's not very many people i follow on social media where i'm like yeah this is awesome i don't really use it as a consumer too much um use it for the business but yeah generally uh, I'd way rather read their book or watch something that's been put together, maybe a podcast rather than those little social media snippets. Yeah, I hear you. And there's something interesting you've mentioned, I don't know, four or five times of making sure that when you're viewing all of this, it's in line with who you are and relevant to you as a person. And so it sounds like there's this very core identity you have and which you mm. keep relating back to. Yeah, I think it's... How do you identify who you are and how do you get clarity on that identity for yourself? Yeah, I think um, for me, I think self-awareness is always just a powerful tool. So the the more you can learn about who you are, what makes you tick, what you're about, you know, with a good amount of openness and transparency. So you're as honest as you can be with yourself. I've found that it allows for greater growth. Right. And, um, yeah, I know at times where I've bought into things that I thought, you know, I was about, or maybe wasn't, and there's there's an exploration to it as well. But for me, that's, that's really foundational part of the journey of life is exploring that as much as you can. Um, and it's something that I love sharing and trying to help others with as well as like, how do you end up being the truest version of yourself? And how does that change as you go through different stages of life? as well because who I was when I was 15 very different to when I was 20 to 25 to 30 to 35 to what I'll be when I'm 40 or 45 so I'm always looking for that next evolution 
you know, and at the moment, from what I understand, I can only really live my existence. I can't, I can influence and impact the worlds of those around me um, to an extent. But I think fundamentally one of my big beliefs is just, yeah, try to become yeah the best version of who you can be in alignment. Again, using that word with who you are, what your values are, your strengths, your skills, your abilities, what you're about. Um, and just, yeah, see what that looks like and how it influences other aspects of your life. Yeah. And so what are your, what are your best strategies to do that? How do you do that as effectively do, as you can? Yeah. So one of the things, again, we'll go, I don't know, you, you've done an episode with Vin, yep. uh, Vin Jang, who's an amazing human. So one of the things that we've sort of worked on a lot over the last four or five years is we have this concept called like life design mm. and recalibrate where we really dig deep into our lives and we analyze them and we go through a lot of different aspects. We look at the things that lit us up, you know, like memorable moments. We look at down moments. We explore our values. We look at our passions and our skill sets and areas that we want to develop and enhance. Then we turn that into nearly like a business strategy, but for ourselves where it's like, all right, well, this is our vision. These are the outcomes that we want. These are some of the actions we might need to take. This is some of the knowledge. This is how we're going to score it and have metrics around what that looks like. So I've, I guess in a way, like turned it into quite a robust process just because that's what I like doing. And it's one of those really, for me personally, just a really therapeutic exercise doing that every three months, six months, nine months, 12 months. And really, especially important if you are an entrepreneur or somebody that doesn't have too much structure around them, that they are accountable to, or they report into. Mm -hmm. So I had to design something like this for myself to keep, give me some structure. So I could still feel freedom, but also could see progress and not just go down the in pajamas until midday um, type of existence where you're a little bit more reactive. So that, that's one of my approaches that I keep using to refine my understanding of where I'm at, what I'm doing, who I want to become, who I currently am, how I want to impact those around me. It's sort of done within that process of life design. Cool. So if I'm hearing you created this process with throughout your whole journey, both the structural career side, as well as all the entrepreneurial mm -hmm. possibilities and potentials mm -hmm. and activities and avenues which yeah. you went down. Um, you've created a structure for yourself, which will really yeah. help you keep yourself accountable to your identity and who you really are. And interesting that you know that that's ever changing, that your identity and how you see yourself and what you want to achieve is always changing and never just going to stand still. Absolutely. It's a moving, moving in shifting game all the time. Mm. In my opinion, like even I love Bruce Lee's quote, right? Like you have to be fluid and flow like water. That's a pretty core foundation that I always relate to is that nothing stays the same. It's constantly moving and it's constantly shifting. And I think for us as humans, a lot of the times it can be hard programmed that when we do get comfortable and we really like something, we want to hold on to that yes. and keep it the the same way. Whereas it's quite difficult to do, um, <laughs> yeah, especially in the world that we're living in. So for me, I've just found that, you know, being clear kind of on who I am and what I want to do, but not really being too fixated to how that might play out in terms of, moves or strategies or actions that take place and 
I mean, I mean, it sounds like you've found moments in your life or in your journey where you have been really comfortable and you almost just wanted to stay there. Yeah, I think, I think everyone has that natural tendency. I'm probably less attached to that. Like I kind of like, I probably get more uncomfortable when things aren't changing Mm -hmm. would be my natural tendency. Like if it's just the day to day on repeat, I really struggle with that. I wish that I could do that more. Um, so I'm, I'm probably more suited to change and uncertainty than like, if there was a spectrum off it, I think I'd be at the higher end of that spectrum in terms of being able to adapt to change. But then I think like most people, you you still have areas where you get comfortable, you get into a comfortable little hitting zone, but I'm usually trying to be attentive of that too. They're like, okay, am I just doing this because it's easy or it's comfortable or do I need to then question that to maybe keep moving forward yeah okay well maybe now's a good chance to dive dive into your journey so you start as early as you want to to give people idea of where you are it could be from childhood or when you finish school whatever it's up to you tell us more about ali's journey all right this is a good i've done this one for a little while but i think if i look back as a kid uh, i grew up as an only child so i was and probably a relatively interesting upbringing. You know, it was me as an only child, really close to my mom, quite an interesting relationship with my dad, which was ultimately not existent um, by the end. So I had this contrast. My dad was a little bit of a dreamer. You know, he wanted to be an entrepreneur, but never really executed it. So I could see that side of wanting to do things, but not actually delivering on them. So I think as a child, you're sort of learning these bits and pieces and we didn't grow up with much. We had a pretty simple upbringing. You know, I'd say that like on the socioeconomic scale, it was definitely much closer to the lower end, you know, parents on welfare at times, you know, my mom ultimately then started working when I was 12 or 13, we migrated to Australia. So it was, a little bit around me looking at, okay, how can I, I think a core part of me from a young age was how can I curate my ideal environments? Mm. You know, like the, because there was bits of mine that I really liked. And then there was bits of mine that I really wanted to escape and then get away from. So I think entrepreneurship even now makes sense because you get to design your own world. Um, you know, like I've always been a big fan of creating things out of nothing, you know, the underdog stories, the, uh, transformation stories. So that's something I, Vin and I were talking about this earlier today, you know, the love that we had for movies like the mighty ducks and <laughs> cool runnings where you have these, these great underdog stories. So I think that was very inherent early on, uh, in, in my journey. But then I'd say, then I got into my teenage years and it was the usual sort of, like, I think parts of my upbringing read, led to, I really didn't like authority didn't really like school, didn't like the structure of things. I always used to question things like, why do we have to go five days a week? Why do we have to listen to this person that doesn't necessarily, you know, isn't necessarily an expert in their field? Why are we learning things that I'll never really be able to use or apply, or there's a very good chance that are irrelevant. So I was always wondering about, you know, like structures and why they exist and, why certain things is done a certain way. So again, curiosity and trying to question those things. Like I think even in year 12, my attendance at school was something around like 45% yeah, wow. or 50%. But what I was also trying to do at the same time, I'm like, okay, well, I think I'm going to need this stuff. Like there's a very good chance that if I don't do okay in this later on, I could foresee that 
things are going to be a little bit more difficult because I didn't have much of a direction. didn't really know what I wanted to do. So then at the same time as I was not attending school, I was also trying to hack it. So I'm like, okay, what's the way that I can still go 40, 50% of the time, but can I get, you know, I was nearly 80, 20 it before 80, 20 was a thing. I was thinking about how can I still get 80% of the result? And funnily enough, my ATAR score ended up around 80, um, where it should have been probably 40 yeah. or 30, but it was, okay, well, how can I deconstruct getting a decent result without having to really participate too much in this? And what I found was if I got better at memorizing large amounts of data, reading faster, um, looking at practice exams and deconstructing those, those three things would probably give me 80, 90% of the information that I needed. Um, and even looking at the practice exams, generally they didn't really change too much. So you only had to really learn eight or nine different concepts and be familiar with them rather than reading the whole book or going to every class. What, what, what um, resources taught you how to do that? Or do you just work it out yourself? Uh, yeah, kind of just, I think is just trying to deconstruct the outcome. Mm of how to get a decent result. It was then looking at what's available. What's like the most direct route to get to that outcome. Mm. Um, because back then the internet was still pretty new. So there wasn't much out there to show you how to hack different bits and pieces, but I was just kind of looking at the different tools that were available to me at the time. And back then when the internet was new, they were putting up the practice exams online, but I don't think many people were really looking at those too much. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. So you found some shortcuts. So, Found some shortcuts. Why we reinvent the wheel. Yeah, why reinvent the wheel. For sure. And I think that's been an actual tendency of mine, even growing up, is I always liked finding the most impactful. Like, they're not often the most, the the easiest ways to do things, but just finding, like, what's the thing here that really has the highest potential for impact that I'll enjoy doing? Because for me, I ended up probably spending more time on trying to deconstruct the exams. Like, I could have just gone and studied probably for the similar amount of time conventionally and got the same outcome or similar outcome, but this is more fun and it was a little bit more unique. So again, that was in my heading zone. So then again, leading into then working, it was more to me that now looking back, it just started being like an apprenticeship. I think that's the beautiful thing about working, especially in a good organization is you get to learn and you get to learn from other people. You get to experience a lot of things. You don't have to front up your own resources. You get to make more mistakes. There's a lot more of a protection mechanism there. So when I look at university and then also working in a higher education environment, that was amazing. I got to travel around the world, got to execute strategies, got to negotiate deals, got to learn from a, a lot of amazing leaders. So while that was happening, I was building a lot of core foundational skill sets. And then, yeah, then I think it was, all right, well, I love this job. I love what I'm doing in this space, but I can't see myself doing this for another 10 or 20 years. Like at some point, my learning within this ecosystem is going to max out. And I'd gotten to the point where I was pretty close to maxing out. There wasn't really any job within that system that I was aspiring for. I've climbed up the ladder relatively quickly in that environment. So it was nearly, I could see the end point was coming pretty soon. And I'm like, okay, well now where I'm at at this moment, what could be the next stage for the next five to 10 years? And then I'll link back started reflecting on childhood a little bit. And I'm like, okay, well, I think entrepreneurship or doing a passion-based business could be the one. And it coincided with doing a course at NYU, which was on entrepreneurial thinking and leadership in the new age. It coincided with, you know, pretty much the book, the four hour work week, falling on my foot at the airport, reading that on the way home. Um, And then digging into that. And I'm like, oh, well, this is amazing. This is somebody that thinks very similar 
to how I've been thinking for the last five to 10 years, but I've never seen it written down in this form or presented like this. So I'm like, okay, well, there's more of a framework here. And it actually, that was the first time I saw the idea of, you know, a passion-based business or creating a muse. Like rather than doing an MBA, let's go and start a business related to golf, which was at that, which was essentially future golf. Okay. Um, and I'm like, all right. I'll... So before we go there and then dive into the whole yep. journey of future golf, how, what do you think you'd attribute to the success you had in your career? Why you climbed up the corporate ladder? I know it's an educational mm-hmm. environment, but why you yep. climbed up that ladder faster than most of your peers? I, th- I think in a lot of ways, in those environments, really big organizations, a, a lot of the stuff that happens is quite political. Yes. Right. So you're in, like, say, for example, in the academic world, you know, there's a really big distinction between academic staff members and professional staff members. Yes. And you like, you can only essentially become the CEO, which is in most of those factors, like the Dean call it or the vice chancellor, if you've already got an academic background. And most of these people are generally specialists in certain areas that aren't really managing a big organization, but they're in those positions, you know, through a little bit of development, but also more based on their technical abilities, which is great. Um, but then it was breaking down and looking at, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm not going to become an academic. So I'm in the professional staff environment, but I'm like, okay, well, what are the things that I've got here that are unique? So one of the things that was pretty unique is I was somebody that was on average, maybe 20, 25 years younger than most of my colleagues Mm -hmm. in that environment. So I'm like, okay, so maybe I've got an advantage here in terms of using things that are new, right? If I can communicate to the academics and people that are established, what it might look like to use digital or tech or new systems, um, there might be a little bit of an advantage there. The other thing was I found that there was a pretty big lack of quality reporting. So one of my mentors um, that I was working with gave me the great advice, which was know your numbers. If you're somebody that works in the tertiary system and you actually know the numbers and you know how to link them to the actual results, you've got a big advantage because most people are being relatively reactive. Uh, The other thing was I was pretty confident to communicate ideas as well. So I would go against rather than playing the game of politics, because I ultimately didn't really care too much about the politics. Like I'm like, if this gets too political, it's probably time for me to go anyway. Yes. So I'll just keep presenting ideas and what I think could work without really caring too much about the politics, being respectful, obviously, and playing the game, but communicating them in the way that we're more linked to the result rather than whether it's going to annoy blah, 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 or, you know, that person won't like it. Like I'd factor those bits and pieces in because you need to know the players that you're communicating with. But it was really identifying who are the people that make the decisions here, who hold the ultimate power, who can make things happen and then aligning with them. Right. And And by aligning with them, you mean showing them how you can get them the results that they're after. Give them the results that they're after and really clearly linking it to how those results are going to help them too. Because if they were playing the game of politics, for example, you can easily help highlight somebody above you to help them climb up their ladder or mm. execute on what they uh, they can report on that'll be favorable. So I kind of let that happen because there were better political players that I was around that could do that. And then I would ultimately my role was developing and executing the strategies mm-hmm. that would help the foundations of those results. And I think that made me for certain people within the organization quite a valuable um, asset yeah that they can then utilize. okay so what 
What was then that moment that made you realize, even though you've clearly, you know how to play the game, you know how to present yeah. the numbers, you came up with ideas, yeah. you could bring the tech, yeah. you could do all this stuff yeah. that others weren't able to, or maybe the tech wasn't advantage enough anymore by the time you yeah. got there, you're too old. Yeah. But you had, you had all of these advantages and you were able to play the system and you're doing really well. What was the moment that made you realize, oh, I don't want to keep doing this? Um, it wasn't like a specific moment, but there was a few, <laughs> there was a few little bits and pieces. I remember we had one meeting, which would happen just once a month and the meeting would only go for an hour. But by the end of my career, I just remember that meeting being something that I just always wanted to avoid, like, you know, as much as I could. And then to me, that was a signal. I'm like, this is now something where two, three years ago, I didn't really mind it. At times, I think at the beginning, I would have been even nervous to attend that meeting and, you know, speak up in it. And it became one of those things where that meeting became something that, yeah, it was like, just something that I didn't want to participate in. And to me, these are little checkpoints is I could now see that uh, what aspects of this other than call it the salary or the title or whatever it is, am I actually into that? I'd still love to do, even if they weren't connected to all of these call it benefits that I receive, like which parts of the game do I actually enjoy playing and will I enjoy playing longer term? And it probably just got to the point where just, that list of items became less, but on paper, this is, and this is the really, this was the really tricky thing for me at that point is on paper as a job, as a standalone job that I was doing, it's a 9.5 out of 10, if not a 10 out of 10 in terms of a role. Like I couldn't think, so it was really difficult, nearly decision and choices to make, to start thinking about the next step when you're already in something that's very good. And that doesn't really make sense to a lot of people while you'd look at leaving it. You know, so that was quite, quite a challenge. And, you know, especially when you've got a young child and um, you're trying to explain it to your wife that, hey, you know, this is, I think that I can see the end point coming closer and closer here, but it's still very awesome. And it provides us with so much, but I'm now thinking about this imaginary golf club as <laughs> a potential avenue. Like, what do we think? Um, I think like with most things in life, I'm a big fan. You just sort of back yourself in, see where it lands. And worst case scenario is I just a big believer that most things are quite reversible. You know, like that whole thing of leaving a job, uh, when I really broke it down, it's like, okay, well, if I don't have this job, will I ever be able to get another job again? Probably. Probably. Yeah. You know, so once I got comfortable with that, will it be the exact same job? Maybe not. Like that's the risk that I'm taking, but I might not be able to get a 10 out of 10 gig. But say if I go down this path and it doesn't work, I think within two to three years, I should be able to get myself an eight or a nine out of 10, mm. all things considered, just based on what I was able to previously execute. Yeah, okay. So I had a little bit of confidence there. So if you were enjoying the, yeah. the salaried corporate organization role, yeah. why so many side hustles as you were going through it? Yeah, because it's still, there was parts of that, because the salary and the benefits were one component of it. But I go back to the learning journey and then, you know, just the dynamics of call it innovation opportunities to create. Like, I think that I always had this inner desire that I wanted to go start something myself and really execute a vision start to finish mm. that was, yeah, more, more mine and more passion aligned as well. Like I love that space, but it wasn't like the space that I was really, really passionate about. Like I love education, love higher ed and, you know, I think it's an awesome industry, but 
it's not up there with say something like golf where like that's something that I probably wanted to do with a lot more of my time even at that point okay and so you started future golf if my memory serves me correctly probably a few years before you ended up leaving corporate yep yep and then yep. this was just this small thing you're kind of nurturing on the side yeah very small like I'm talking maybe an hour or two worth of time allocated to it for the first few years, you know, like during the day, mm -hmm. if I'd call it. And then as it kept building, because for me, it was like, I just wanted to sit like, I think deep down in my head, I thought we'd launch this thing. I would learn how to set up a website and a community, maybe get a little bit of experience and then just go back to normal life, right? Like what's the odds of it actually turning into every anything? And I've probably had that mindset on it for the first three years, mm. three, four years where it's like, okay, well, I know that I love this and I'm happy to do it even if it's me and 10 of my mates. So it didn't really matter too much. And I'm like, okay, we're reading books, learning stuff. We're then testing these things real time. And it was actually really valuable in my day job because I was learning so many more skills than I would have from an MBA. Like I was learning, I was reading three, four books a week, you know, on marketing, on leadership, on negotiation and all these things. And I was executing all of them in my role. I'm like, wow, there's something powerful in this, like actually re-educating myself and going down that path and then seeing how it actually impacts results and what can then turn into. So yeah, it was funny. Like future golf is just this thing that was happening kind of in the background that we loved. And there was a few people that I had around me that were really, you know, close mates and we're just building this thing for a bit of fun. And to me, it was never going to be an actual thing. You know, it was always going to be the thing that we learned about business. Like I always viewed it as like the MBA equivalent. And then maybe one day in four or five years, I'll go and start a real business. You know, and it was because it never made sense. It's like, there's surely this can't actually become as like something, you know? It, it, and I think that was really cool to see that kind of play out. So maybe, maybe let's tell the listeners, what is future golf? What's it about? Yeah. What's so this thing you golf... thought would never be a business, never be something real? <laughs> yeah. So when I was looking at, you know, one of the things that I was reading in, a lot of entrepreneurship books at that time is you create something that's very niche and then you create something to solve a problem that you've actually got or people that you know are experiencing. So when I was looking back at, and, and then the other bit coming out of say Ferris's book was you can even, uh, maybe it wasn't Ferris's, it might be in a different one, but you do something that you really love, right? That you're passionate about because that way, if you invest time and effort into something that you really love and you're passionate about, you generally won't feel the downside if it doesn't conventionally succeed. So I wanted to create something that even if it had one member and that member was me and my friend, that we could still view it as a success because we went and played a round of golf and set up a website or whatever and had it happening. So I think that was kind of the start. And the, the real core problem that we're trying to solve is how do you, how do you get, because I came from a background where I wasn't really into golf. I, I didn't have family members that were into golf. I picked it up relatively late. Um, you know, in sport, because most people that play sport are really into it. They start playing that sport when they're a kid, when they're four to 10 or four to 15 years old. The first time I played around a golf was, I think I was 21, but it grabbed me really quickly, but it was also a very difficult sport to get into back then. You know, like you sit there and I'd like, well, where do I get a golf club from? which golf club do I get? Where do I go and hit balls? Because you call up a course and like, ah, oh, no, sorry, we're a member's course. Like, 
And I'm like, oh, how much is a membership? And they're like, oh, that'll be $5,000. And it's like, okay, well, that's probably a bad phone call. And then you call up somewhere else and it's like, oh, well, it's $50 to play. I'm like, all right, sweet. You rock up. And they're like, oh, do you have golf clubs? It's like, no, I don't have golf clubs. So there's all these different steps. You might go to a driving range. So I started playing in a thing called pitch and putt, where you play these really short holes. You have one club and a putter and they're like 50 meter holes and me and a mate of mine would go down there after work and we would hit some balls and then we went down to kmart we got our first we got our first wedge and our first putter and then we played that a little bit more then you start hitting some okay shots it's like oh well this is really cool i really like the feeling of hitting the ball let's go to the driving range up the road then you start hitting a driver and a few bigger clubs and you're like oh well i really suck at this maybe i'll go book in a lesson then you get a lesson and you learn a little bit more technique then you hit some more balls and you go to a public golf course and you go and play around. So I kind of went through that journey up until the point where I got really addicted to it. Even when I was at work, the only thing I could think about was going out and playing golf. Right. And then I got probably six to eight of my mates into it. And then I guided them through it. It's like, all right, well, this is where we're going to go. This is how you're going to start. These are some of the just fundamental tips. This is where we're going to play. We all ended up eventually joining up at a local golf course. We played there for a couple of years, few years. Then we started having kids. And then we got, we're at that point when this all happened. It's like, okay, well, right now what's happening? So we're having kids. We're not really getting much value out of a membership. We're only playing two times or three times a year. All the boys were thinking about, you know, how do we still play golf in a different way? That's a little bit more affordable. And then it's like, okay, well, wh- why don't we do this concept where it's a more flexible golf membership? And there was a couple of things like it that existed out there. One was with RACV, which is a big insurance company. They had one, but you could only access like four of their courses. And I'm like, I think RACV are actually onto something here with the idea, but imagine if this was broader but then it also could service a lot of younger golfers because that was the other big thing that was happening in golf is that when we were playing at our local clubs, everyone that you'd play with their average age was maybe 60 to 70 years old. And sometimes you'd get paired up with someone that'd be amazing. But then other times you'd get paired up with someone and it would be like one of the worst experiences for four and a half hours because you had no common ground to speak about, or it was just the generational gap was maybe, too big and, to be... and maybe you didn't manage to get the buggy <laughs> and then they're walking slower than a snail i'm guessing it could be like a lot of those things or like someone just really like you know they'd be maybe grumpy they didn't want to see somebody young out mm. there and they'll be really fixated on the rules and the traditional ways so right. i think there was all these things that were happening in our sport back then that probably weren't conducive to a younger audience mm. you know and that perception was that you know golf is only for very elite rich older people um and you know generally that was kind of the perception of golf back then so it was like all right we'll go back to the fundamentals can we make something niche so i actually wanted to call it under 30s golf when we first started but i was 27 or 28 at the time and one of my friends was like oh well if this works for more than two years you'll be out (laughs) of your own thing so then we went with the name gen y golf um, which then ultimately became future golf. So even trying to define the age bracket with the name that also helped us get into the industry and at, at its core, ultimately future golf still is pretty similar to what it was on day one, where we partner up with golf clubs and facilities and people within the industry, they provide our members with the benefit. We package that as a membership and then we build a community off the back of that. So it's like a, the flywheel is 
kind of feeds it's all based on mutual value yeah it keeps transitioning awesome i love it exactly to what you're talking about of doing things which you really enjoy but it's also solving a problem that other people aren't able to solve just yet or maybe they can but they're not or they're not challenging the status quo that you spent all of your high school years doing and so then you guys start having kids and maybe this is something we should really do what were the next Mm. steps what happened next yeah so pretty much i think after like so funnily enough at the same time i had about 30 different ideas on the wall for things that i wanted to look at you know with this passion driven business idea and then from reading the books i'm like oh yeah well shouldn't be that easy so in the same week started two businesses so i started future golf and then started a pub crawl um and so we ran the pub crawl for about six seven months but it was really good to have both of them happening at the same time in a way because it just made me realize how much more i like the golf and that yeah the pub crawl just probably even though people were coming and it was you know call it again quotation marks relatively successful it just wasn't that aligned or something that I didn't want to put that much time and effort into. So then I think, yeah, the next steps really for future golf was back then Facebook advertising was still pretty new. So it was looking at, okay, I've got this concept and this idea, how can we get it out there? And that's ultimately how it started. It started just with a Facebook post. I found a $50 ad voucher outlined what I thought the concept might be, which was essentially, Hey, do you want to play? Uh, are there any younger people out there that want to play golf together at a variety of different courses? Going to try to build this membership with these features, which is still pretty much what we deliver today. Um, if you're keen, uh, let us know your thoughts. And then, yeah, check back at the ad. And there was probably maybe 50 comments or something like that. And people were like, yeah, this sounds awesome. Let's give it a go. Then it was just creating a website with a PayPal button. And it was essentially, you know, using some of the other tools there where it was like, put out the concept. Now that people have said that they may be interested in it, it's going to be a lot different to see if they're actually willing to pay for it. Um, can you validate your idea with that? So it was essentially, hey, you can pre-order. You'll come on as a foundation member. We'll hope to launch in a couple of months. If you know this works, let's make it happen. If not, you'll just get your money refunded. And then from there, there was crickets. Like I think maybe two people signed up <laughs> outside of my mates. Hey, we're really and it's like, hey, where were all those? Yeah, yeah, where are all those 50 people that were commenting? They were all excited. So then I learned the first lesson in entrepreneurship is um, it's usually a slow burn at the beginning. And then I was like, I just went back to the fundamentals. It's like, okay, because I think if it, was, if it wasn't golf and it was something else, that would have been the point where I think most people just pulled the pin. They're like, hey, I had this big idea. I thought it was going to snowball. A thousand people were going to join up within two weeks. That didn't happen, so I'm out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very, when you look at the graveyard of like Facebook pages out there, um, that's generally what happens. You see like a week or two worth of posts and then it's kind of gone. Or maybe there's a sporadic one every month or two. But when people don't get instant feedback or validation for their concepts, unless they're really passionate about it, generally they'll bail out on the idea. Okay, so, and you were saying just it was just because of your passion of golf and passion for creating the, the community you wanted to as well, and that's yeah. what made it all real. Well, I, for sure, I think it was just the the persistence call it, mm-hmm. and also having a few really key people around me that were also that bought into the idea very early on into the process. So the fact that they were around, and you know, as I said, we were still going to play golf with six seven mates. It just made it a lot more feasible for it not to be 
growing or being all that successful at the beginning. But and surely it wasn't just persistence. It was persistence in doing the right things and changing tactics yeah. and changing strategy, right? Absolutely. Like, because to me it was, I was treating it like an MBA, right? So it didn't matter what it was going to do. I was, I was pretty much locked into allocating at least a year worth of education and testing to it uh, in the back of my mind. Or if it wasn't that, into the pub crawl or something. So I would have probably just changed tax a little bit more. Like I was being relatively open-minded, but I knew that I wanted to read a lot of books and then try to execute them in a real life scenario. Mm. It's something that was essentially new. So that was a core part of the approach. And then that way it just took away any pressure on the result. And I wasn't investing large amounts of money or time into it. So I had a lot of flexibility. Like you hear that story, which is, I think, a very common one where someone be like, Hey, I'm quitting my job. I want to sell my house. I'm going to get business cards in the domain and build a website and then see how it plays out. And I think I personally think that's quite a risky approach when you go all in on something, when you've done zero reps yes. in that game, like you have no muscles um, in that environment other than the fact that you've taken a big chance and a risk on an idea. Um, you hear those stories are quite rare where people just build a parachute really quickly once I've made that move, but most often that story ends up kind of sad well, or as a really good learning experience because I, I love the lean startup model or the four hour work week model of entrepreneurship where you just keep validating an idea, relatively low risk, and then see if it improves. And if you get validation from the market as time goes by, that's my personal view on it. Whereas I think there is the other option where you just allocate a heap of capital to something and so you go, but yeah, that's not the one that I really like. So what was the, what was the key, like the crucial change in strategy that you made from crickets to starting to gain some momentum? It's hard to think whether there's one like big move or not, but when I look back on it now, I think just getting, getting the first partner on board was really big because that's still the foundation to our model. Like when we had a golf club and facility that could now see what the benefit was of partnering with a concept like this, it made me think that this thing could be real because if one's on board, I'm like, we could get four. And I felt like we needed four for it to be a decent value proposition. So within, once that approach got tightened, and again, I go back to other skills that I'd learned around deal-making, presenting, communicating a value proposition when I was able to find in which bits and pieces I actually wanted, just being new to the space, that really helped. And then being able to communicate that, we ended up getting four partners, I think then within a month, whereas we didn't have any partners for the first two or three. Right. So it's like, okay, now we've got something here that's got a little bit more product to it. I think, you know, then we had something like, I think very early on a cricketer, Glenn Maxwell, he joined up. So we were using him in marketing material just because he was related to a mate. He was living with a good mate of mine at the time. So then that helped. Um, then another guy, John, who's very connected to the golf industry, he kind of reached out and was like, hey, I love what you guys are doing. So I can help you because I know a lot of people within the industry. So then just things have started, you know, that combination of putting yourself in the position, but then little opportunities showing themselves it was just being attentive to those and then making the most of those little moves as they happen you know like even our general manager Ro, he was just a member that joined up like member number 20 
2530. You got boys like, I'll help you guys with finance. And then he just kept growing and evolving and driving the business forward. I had my mate Woody at the beginning as well, who was just handling all the ops and went and did like a golf rules course to learn the rules of golf and how to process handicap cards. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, when I look at it, like even now, the core part of it was trying to communicate what we were trying to do and having people buy into that. But then just all the different people that came through the journey at different times throughout it. Um, some that are still there, some that aren't, but it's amazing just to, when you actually look back at the thread of anything to just see how many people actually play a role in making that happen, which is very cool. Yeah. Okay. And so you finally left corporate. Where was future golf yeah. at the time when you left? I was still very like pretty much unviable in right. many forms. You know, it was like, I think revenue wise, maybe like four figures, <laughs> four to five figures, you know, so it's not really enough to hire or sustain a business. I think we would have had maybe three, 400 members yep. uh, at that point. So it was kind of ticking over a little bit there. Um, but it, it was showing potential. There was like, I was, I was already mapping out a plan to scale it at that point. And one of the big moves really was getting Roe, who was like looking after our finance at that point because he was still working a full-time job was seeing if we could get him in a position to come full-time into uh, into focusing on future golf because his skill now was at that point was to get us partners to look after the day-to-day of the business and make sure it was all ticking over so if we could if we could figure out a way to get him in there full-time i think we had a pretty good chance uh, at that period in the journey and then we we're able to pull that off um and then yeah just coincided with me kind of making the transition at a very similar time i took i think i'd like six months along service leave so i took that to see whether we could make some things happen during that period of time as well um and then yeah like we're still by the end of that it wasn't like oh this is a certainty by any means it's still probably another year year and a half of just complete grinding throughout that process but i think that's that little bridge of uncertainty where people make the leap and we're in a position where it wasn't completely insecure but there was enough there where it could still go either way you know we didn't know for certain whether this thing could fly um or not but then i think a a solid year of full focus of both of us honed in and then building out other aspects of our team we then rebranded into future golf at a similar time, changed our website, got more partners on board. Then it's like, okay, well now we've got something here that has a chance at becoming a real leader in its category and taking the next step. Mm. So I'm curious, what was it? Because you mentioned early on when you were leaving, a lot of it was just because you didn't want to be there anymore. And now you're talking about future golf when you're leaving because you're really excited. Obviously it's both, but which one was it more of? Was it the, the pain and when you look down the road and continuing career, you can see wow. this frustration. Yep. It's a terrible outcome yep. versus the potential of what future golf could be. Yep. Which uh, one was it? It was more? definitely the growth, definitely the growth potential yeah. of what future golf could be, or just what a life is in the entrepreneurship world could look like, mm. you know, because the other version for me, wasn't that painful, you know, like it was actually, I wish it was more painful mm-hmm. because it would have been easy to make the decision. It's harder when, you're in an environment that really is quite good and the job is good. Whereas I didn't really have that situation, you know, like it was like, I, like if my backup was to just continue that for three to five years, that was still pretty awesome. Yeah. 
in my head. Like it wasn't like that was going to be a disaster by any means. It probably would have maybe not been ideal or perfect, but I think that the upside of this version was always going to be a little bit higher. To you and everything which you've been sharing, it sounds like almost uh, every everything that you look at and the way you perceive every area of your life and every challenge that comes up is almost viewed in a really positive lens. Like <laughs> even when you were talking about in high school, like yeah, there are plenty of kids yeah. who would be in that situation and they've got the same perspective where they want to challenge the structure and they don't want to be controlled by some kind of authority figure. And so they lash out and they go drinking and they drop out of school and whatever. But you saw it as really positive. I don't want to do it that way. I'm going to find another way around it. This will be fun. Does that apply in every area of your life? Is that just something that you see as a notable difference between yourself and others? Yeah, I'd say like now that you you bring it up, I'd say it's pretty consistent. Like even my wife will often say it's like you just never really see anything as a loss. (laughs) like it's always it's always got some sort of upside or there's some lesson to be learned from it or yeah and i think that's just maybe even the way that i grew up it would have been very easy to harp on things that weren't working or wanting what other people had but to me i think it was always just well what can you do about it like uh, or what can you take from this experience and turn it into uh, like I always love the saying, you know, like let's turn lemons into lemonade. It's probably one of the big things that I've always really lived by as much as possible. But because... what, when in your upbringing taught you that? Because there are plenty of people, I'm sure you still know some of them from your upbringing who are nowhere near where you are right now. Yeah, hard to explain. Like I'm not really sure what it is. I think when I look at the contrast between my parents is I saw one that was the dreamer that could never really execute. But then I saw my mom, which was like just the real big believer in like the world being an awesome, awesome place and just being, you know, good to people and good things will happen and having those lessons, even in tough environments. So I think it was that mixture of both because on one hand, if I look back now, like my dad's experience probably inspired me that I don't want to end up down that same road. And then my mum, like, even though we didn't really have much, it's provided lots of kind of confidence or self-belief, even though it wasn't really warranted. You know, like if you looked at everything that was going on, even when I look at my teenage years and what my habits were like and how school and stuff was playing out, conventionally everyone would say, this is, this is a shit show. But like mum would always be like, no, nah, it's fine. Like, you know, it's going to all be good. And so I think I had that just a level of maybe internal belief or confidence or something that just came from that from the lessons that i learned from her yeah okay and then it's interesting in this whole in every example of everything which you've spoken about so far it sounds like there are very few decisions which you actually make on your own and there are few very Mm. few ventures you've actually done on your own is that Mm. just part of your personality or has that been a really conscious choice in everything you do to surround yourself with other people yeah i think my general thread is i like having a big perception of freedom or nearly like call it like maybe influence in, in an area where it's like, okay, I think that this is a world that we could create. And then I'm like, who's in, you know? So that's generally the way that I've usually done most things in my life. It's like, all right, well, this is what I kind of feel like. I yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I'm like the ultimate team player, but I love playing with the team if that makes sense. Like, I think as a collaborator and stuff like that, it can often be quite difficult because I've got 
relatively strong views on, you know, I think we should do it, maybe not in terms of detail, but in terms of overall direction and the vision of something, I'm really usually quite strong on those things, but then I'm generally quite flexible with how everything happens within those parameters. Mm. So it's like, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but a little bit of a trade-off there where it's like, Hey, here's the table. Here's the game. This is how it's all set up. This is where I think we're going ultimately. Now, who wants to, who wants to be a part of this? And do you think that you align with it? And that's where that team component and everyone else comes in. So usually as I'm thinking about these plans or strategies, one of the first things I'm thinking about is who would be best aligned with this thing that is coming through? Like who, who, who do we need for this? Who's the person that's already 80% that were born for this role? You know, like if you think about directing a movie, it's like, which actor do you want to play or star in that? in in that position mm. that's how i think i naturally think about. but it's got to be your idea first right it's got to be your movie first most of the time i think i'm the one writing the movie <laughs> 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 a lot of the time like i haven't participated in too many like i definitely do in other people's movies like um but yeah i'd say it's like maybe a 70 30 split you know obviously in family life it's definitely not my movie it's a shared movie where everyone uh, I play I play a supporting cast member role in that movie. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff say that even things that I do with Vin, for example. You know, that's that's not my movie, so it's like it, but it still contributes to the overall movie if that makes sense. And then there's some bits where it's very much my vision and the the film that I probably wanted to write. Right. So it's like everything you get involved with. It's either an, an idea that you've come up with first. Oh, yeah, this is an awesome idea, everyone. This is going to be great. Who's going to come with me? And then yeah. you continue leading the ship. And this is where the boats go. And then we're heading that way. And it's going to be really cool. We'll work it out as we go. Who's coming? Yeah. This is going to be fun. That's right. And there are other things where you've almost just co-created a really cool idea. And you're like, hey, I think we could create this really cool idea together. What do you think? Oh, I think that could be great. Oh, awesome. Let's do that together. Done. And then you just work on it together and grow it together. For sure. Yep. Which sure. you've done with Vin and your wife. And I'm guessing a whole bunch of others. <laughs> they're, they're the big ones. Kids. Yeah, no, they're, they're, there's a few more. But yeah, generally, they're, like, they're, they're the big ones. You know, because I think, and it's all always around, like, I'm just always big on, like, mutual exchanges of value when you're doing stuff with other people. Uh, and then also aligning that with each individual. Like, if you, I don't know if, you feel the same about this, but I just think that with most things that are brilliant, there's just a really good exchange of value, both for the team and also for the individuals. And when that falls out of balance, it then gets a little bit tricky. So again, when you, when you participate and say, call it create worlds, we have a lot of that happening. It's way easier for everyone to collaborate, to contribute, to feel a part of it, to provide their input. Whereas what we see in a lot of, call it worlds or organizations or environments is the very hierarchical. There's not really all that much for input. Most of the people that are playing within those environments probably aren't flourishing. So there's, there's that little balance. Um, and that's kind of even going back to the school environment that I was talking about. I'm like, this is a great structure. It could be amazing, but the way it's being executed in my experience isn't really aligning all that well. Like why do we have to come at nine o'clock, five days a week? When maybe if we're lucky, we learn one concept that's got any real relevance or value to anything that's going to be relevant to a 15 year old. 
Right? Yeah. Like it's or that they need to learn about. Like I'd much rather at fifteen be learning. Like I remember it was the sessions where you'd have like a footballer come in and tell you about how they navigated the career. They're the things that you really remembered rather than curriculum. Yeah, right. Uh, that was often outdated. So does this I think that questioning mindset is maybe very inherent, especially in entrepreneurs, like whether it's curiosity or questioning or look at, because that's ultimately what we end up doing. We create things that also then question the established way. Like you can't just go around creating the same idea that's been created before and accept a result, expect a result. So. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting, right? Because a lot of people whom I've discussed this type of topic with, a lot of them, they'll start to say, well, yeah, I'm curious and I want to find better ways of doing things. So how can we change the structure? How can we change the system? And your perspective seems to be these things need to be improved. So I'm just going to create something completely new on the side. Screw that. And it's almost as if yeah. you're going to start saying that you'd be the type to say, well, I want to homeschool my kids because I don't believe in the school system. And so I'm going to create a brand new schooling system that still works within the model of what curriculum they have to learn and whatever, but it's actually going to be real education is yeah. I'm sure that pop, thoughts popped up in your mind a few it's, times as well. They do, but then it's also one of the things that I've become very mindful of is that some structures are mostly good too. Okay. Right. Like say so that you've got to pick your battles. I think, whereas say, for example, I'm in a fortunate position, say with school, school's a great example. Whereas I'm in a fortunate position where my wife's actually a primary school teacher and has a much greater level of expertise and understanding of that framework. So things like picking the right schools, knowing how to communicate with teachers, how to navigate and make sure that they're getting the best experience. We've got this little bit of call it informational advantage. So I will also very often divert to the expert you know, when I'm not the person that has the greatest understanding, like, yeah, I could sit there and be like, okay, let's rethink a new educational framework at homeschool. But in a practical level, will I then dedicate the amount of time and effort required to execute that and consistently do it? And I think that's also a very important thing when you've got that entrepreneurial mindset is knowing how far are you actually willing to go for that idea? Because when you're trying to enact change, it's usually requires a very extreme level of commitment for a period of time for that change to happen. And whether it's an intense block of time or a very long marathon, you know, it's either a sprint or a marathon, but it's very hard to enact change in one swift move or in a short period from what I've seen. So say things like redesigning our kids schooling, even though I might see some benefits in that, I probably wouldn't go down that path because I know that that's not my area of expertise to really innovate in at this point. Who knows, might change at some point in the future, but I would probably be more so the type that would go and speak at a high school and then share some of my concepts and ideas on how they could maybe hack a result um, or how to get them ready for career choices. Or even when I'm looking at our kids, it's more around trying to train them from a young age on just thinking about some of those things that I wish that I'd learned in school, whether that's, you know, negotiating or communication or setting goals, like some of these little fundamental things that maybe you don't necessarily, I think maybe nowadays a lot of schools are doing these things. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So cool. sometimes it's change it completely. Sometimes it's adapt it. Sometimes it's join forces. Sometimes it's, go with the flow, you know, like it, it just depends. It's, 
I, I'd try to keep a relatively fluid approach mm. to, to most things. There's just very few things that I've found that are black and white in being right or wrong or, you know, there's limitations to thinking like that as well. Is that something you've learned to do? Um, I don't know. I think it's maybe always been in the nature just because if you're adaptable to change generally, you, you maybe just have that mindset. Like it might be pre-programmed somewhat, mm. but I think just from reading a lot more over the last five to 10 years, you, you just see so many more different perspectives, speaking to different people, getting more insights to me. It's just, well, all right. If say, for example, you look at leadership, right? If you only read one book, you might just buy into that one person's views on leadership. Whereas if you go and read 10 or 15 books on it, you'll get a much more colored approach on what leadership could look like. So now you automatically start questioning what you read in book number one, because you're like, okay, well, Jocko Willenick said this, Brene Brown said this, um, Eckhart Tolle said this, uh, Will Smith said this. So it's like you start just seeing a lot more different dots. And then from there, I think that's just trained me in that process of analyzing a lot of different dots, as I'd call them, and then connecting the ones that I most align with. Okay. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that what I'm doing is right or wrong, but it's just more aligned with how I'm seeing the, the space of the game at that given time. If only you could take the, the seal out of Jocko. Yeah. <laughs> and the vulnerability from Renee and the spirituality that's from right. Eckhart Tolle, you'd be incredible. Yeah. That's right. You get, you get a more rounded view, I think, of the world. And, and that's, for me, ultimately what it is, is like when you look at just human beings in general, we all are just so similar yet so different. And I think that's the same even when you look at topics like success or you look at business or you look at careers, like at its core, everyone's kind of doing the same thing. Like people want to do a job or do work that to them is meaningful, that they get rewarded for well. Um, but then it just happens in so many different shapes and forms. So that, that contradiction and that paradox is always existing. Um, so to me, it's just about trying to my best to evolve with that and then keep it aligned to who I am at that given time. Yeah. Okay. And do you ever feel that when you just hone in on, instead of just honing on, on one particular topic or one concept or one teaching, have I going forward? Yep that sometimes you're limiting yourself by going too broad and by increasing breadth by default, you're going to be reducing depth. Yeah. I think you, again, it becomes that same paradox, right? Like there's which one's better being a specialist or being a generalist. And one will argue it one way. The, the specialist will generally say, no, no, it's the best just to be a surgeon for 20 years. And then you finish your career as the best surgeon in the world. And then the generalist will say, no, it was great because I had 50 different things that I was good at. And I was able to combine them all into something that was of value. So again, it goes down to where you're at. Like I've always admired masters of a singular craft, but I've never been one myself. Right. Like I love, like, even when I think about somebody like Vin, one of the things that I really admire about him is how he can go pick a craft like magic or keynote speaking or communication. And he will just hone in. He has the natural ability to hone in on that thing just for such a long period of time. And then uses other skills that he's got, like in terms of distilling it, figuring out different moves, understanding the game. He uses a combination of moves to give him really rapid mastery right? In a specific vocation. I love watching that. Now, will I go and execute that myself? Probably not. I'm one that likes things to happen a little bit more 
fluidly. Like I like, I like big moves that happen just from waiting for the right moment of timing and opportunity. I like playing around. I like doing a few things that don't really make sense that maybe don't link to the, the, the overall thing, but then I'll pick and choose from them and see how I'll integrate it at some point. So it's a little bit more wide ranging yeah. for me. And that's the type of experience that I want to have where follow your nose a little bit and then see where it ends up yeah cool and and it's surprising for me to hear that from you and i agree with your perspective but i didn't see yourself and vin as being that exceptionally different yeah you have some differences but i just see so many more similarities yeah differences yeah no we're, we're aligned we're aligned in heaps of ways but then we do have our little our little differences as well which i think makes the relationship really cool because one of the things is i think we have slightly different different approaches with how we go about things, but we're very aligned with the way that I think we're both wanting to be students of life and learn as much as we can and sort of explore different things. So that's where we kind of come together, but it's awesome having somebody like that where you can share different ideas with, and then I go with it with the perspective, but if he's got the contrasting perspective, it's not one of those ones that's really jarring where it's like, rubbishing the idea or the concept it's more like hey, hey i think that's really good but have you thought about it like this and then obviously it's got a great way of communicating too so it's awesome to to be able for us to just uh, yeah ride that that journey together and so you've spoken a lot about the peers that you connect with and the peers you choose to do things with and you've made a few mentions of mentors but we didn't really explore yeah. that topic uh, yeah. how do you choose someone to be your mentor how do you find them how do you approach them how do you make sure there's someone you actually want to accept influence from? Yeah, for sure. I think, and funnily enough, like for me, mentors come in so many different shapes and forms. Like a lot of people think of the mentor relationship as you go find your Yoda and you do a big reach out and you meet with them and then they mentor you every every week for five years and then you get all their skills and then you become the master. Like I probably haven't had too many mentorship relationships like that. Generally, most of my call it mentorship relationships have generally been done through mutual forms of learning or working together, right? Like, I usually try to turn them into that because I feel really bad where it's a one-way relationship. If I'm just going to a mentor and just extracting all their knowledge, but not then adding any value to them. So when I look at mentorship, I'm trying to say, okay, well, who, who can I learn from that's even like when I'm looking at people that work for me, or potentially that I should be their mentor. I'm also then looking at ways that I'm learning from them because I love hiring people that have a skill set that I don't have mm. and then being able to conceptualize what that skill set is. So my mentorships vary, right? Like I would count Tim Ferriss as a potential mentor, even though I never met him. Like or like most of these books sitting behind me, I'd say that they're mentors in different ways because a mentor is just ultimately someone or something that provides a bit of information that you can relate to and implement to me. That's what the mentorship relationship feels like, or they, or they provide an insight to you that you couldn't really see before. And then a lot of the times that just comes from people that nowadays are just close to me in my life. Like I think for me now, it's not really looking for specific bits of information. Like there isn't a business leader out there that I really want to go like five years ago, there were all the, I had a list of like 10 business leaders that I'd love to have a chat with and a coffee with. But then you realize that the more tactical moves that you can probably learn just from reading their stuff or listening to a podcast of theirs. Like say if I actually wanted to meet with somebody like a Tim Ferriss, I really don't see how that conversation would be of much value 
given all the stuff that he's already probably shared out there. So I sort of wiped a lot of those off the list in terms of a direct mentoring relationship. Whereas now it's more so I'd be going to people that really know who I am, but then also have some specific um, expertise in a certain area. And it's more just around fleshing ideas around like, Hey, I'm, I'm weighing up two or three different ideas right now. What do you think? And getting their opinion. Do you think this fits? What am I not seeing? Can you see something a little bit different? Yeah. So, okay. So, so, so mainly if I'm hearing you correctly, mentorship is really just about the connection with people who are going to hold you to a higher standard and that they're going to yeah. keep you accountable to it and that you just spend more time with them. For sure. It doesn't and, and also they actually have more skills than you in that area. Yeah. Yeah. So like I think it's now it's more around seeing blind spots. You know, I'm asking them more questions of, yeah, like, is there anything here that I'm not saying? Is there, like, one of the things I'm usually asking about now is, like, is there any bullshit in what I'm talking about? Like, is this actually real? Like, trying to get those insights um, more so and then collecting them from people that actually know me rather than trying to find X who scaled a business or something like that. Just probably don't have as much interest in that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> anymore. No, no, that's fair enough. And it's an interesting perspective, right? Because it's no longer just about trying to get part of the, you know, join the millionaires club or join the billions club yeah. or whatever. It's, would you see any value in being able to connect with a whole bunch of people who have been super successful in startup world where they've all yeah. built, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars of businesses mm -hmm. from the ground? Is that an environment you'd want to see yourself in? I think it's definitely valuable depending on what you want you know, and what stage of your journey you're into. Like if I look back at my early stages of say future golf, like I remember going to things like startup grind, you know, going to all these events and you're just collecting, you're just ripe to collect all this information. And at that point in the journey, when you're early on, you need a lot of tactical information. So if I'm speaking to a university student or somebody who's about to start an like you know, a business or somebody who's about to change a role and they're going into an environment that's very, very new, and they haven't done many reps in that environment. I think you need educational-based mentors. They're so valuable because that person can just guide you on that path or you can see their story and you can start picturing the different things that you're going to encounter. Well, like there's very little in life if you, you say climbing up a mountain, whatever that mountain may be, that somebody else hasn't done prior to you. Like there's very few mountains that have been unclimbed. <laughs> yes. So I think if you can find that pathway, it'll at least make the doing part of it a lot more easier and you'll feel a bit more supported. Like I remember seeing even, you know, the team from Vino Mofo early on speak and just how much of an impact that had when designing things like future golf and just going to different conferences, going to different events. So I think at that part of the journey, very, very important. Um, whereas now if I'm looking at my part of the journey, what I probably more need, I more need advisors and, just really good friends. Like that's probably more the thing that you're, you're looking for a little bit more because it's more around looking for things that are more connected to you after you've done some of the tactical stuff. Or well, that's what I'm looking for anyway. Yeah, okay. And so, so, I think it's different so you mentioned something earlier as well. I think you, yeah, you mentioned balance. And within balance, you were talking about finding that balance 
ultimately between all areas of your life, right? It wasn't just about work anymore. It wasn't just about the career or future golf. It was about so much more. Mm-hmm. How have you managed to, and how, what have been the best ways that you've found so far to manage to find more balance yeah, sure. in your life for family and social and all of that? Yeah, I think I, I love strategies and I love plans. So I just implement those in all aspects of my life. So I don't really look at it like in terms of balance. Um, I just look at, like for me, it's just around full alignment, you know, because I think balance means that you're doing trade-offs a lot of the time. And even I remember back in the day, you know, like what's work-life balance. And I'm like, what if there was option three, which was just, you don't have to worry about it. It all kind of feels the same and it's all awesome or not awesome, but it's just life, right? Like, um, there's no real distinctions within it. So what I now do rather than looking at balance, because to me, balance means like, all right, I'm working too hard. So I now need to balance it. Whereas it's more around, I have a look at the overall picture of say, what, what does Ali need to be over the next 12 months, you know, and what's important to that organization called Ali, you know, and that's just me as a person. So treating it more like an entity and then it's like, okay, well, I think Ali really likes his family. He wants to be in a happy relationship. He really likes doing work that's impactful. So then it's like listing out all these different things, likes playing a bit of golf, likes traveling around, maybe wants to learn a new skill like drawing or playing a song on guitar. And then it's mapping out all these different bits and pieces. I generally do this in a really big session at the start of the year and then flesh that out. And then I'm like, okay, well, these are some of like, call it the general themes and the outcomes. Now, what are three to five actions that I can take for each of these? And then what's some knowledge that I need to now bring in? So I call it, made it up. I haven't seen it anywhere else. It's called the Oak method, which is outcomes, actions, and knowledge. Um, and then for nearly anything that I'm focusing on, I'll just break it down with those three concepts. So the outcomes generally either a metric or something that I want to hit, or maybe it's just a general theme, you know, like learn more about this. And then it's like, okay, to learn more about leadership what's three, four actions that I can do? What's two to three bits of knowledge that I need to then pick up as well. And then I flesh that out. I go pretty hardcore. I flesh it out in a tool called Asana and in Asana, it's pretty much got my entire life in there. And then I schedule it, you know, it's still got enough flexibility for spontaneity and enjoyment, but I can look at it every week, every day, every month. And then just keep tinkering around with little bits and pieces. So it's like, okay, every Sunday I'll generally do a weekly plan and review. I'll then be like, these are the actions for the week ahead. I'll color code them and be like, okay, is there enough here around my, my core values? So it might be memorable moments or growth or impact or connection or work, or freedom. And then I can have a look. And that kind of shows me balance. If you want to go back to the word of balance, like if I see one color just popping up for like three weeks, I probably know that I'm a bit out of alignment. You know, I'm just honing in on one thing, unless it's, unless it, I really want that to happen like that. Um, like if I look at January, for example, that's a yellow, like yellow's family, right? So January school holidays, you've got Christmas, New Year's. So that's awesome. You want that. I want that to be really yellow. You know, like if I saw January looking really blue, which is call it freedom and work, then I'm like, okay, maybe I need to just check that out a little bit because at that part point in time i know a lot of the other people around me are probably yeah it's more about connection and um engaging in those awesome activities yeah okay now (laughs) what i love about this there there, there is a bit and i really like it because it's it's obviously 
you and Vin have created something like this together because he was explaining it as well mm. uh, yeah. on the podcast. You can listen oh, to this awesome. episode. <laughs> yeah. About yeah. how he schedules pretty much everything. One of the key insights that he shared from it is that it's actually improved his marriage more than anything else. Yeah. yeah. Because now he can schedule in family time and yeah. his family actually has a space inside the schedule yeah. rather than outside of it. Yeah, have you found sure. the same thing? Yeah, well, I think, again, it goes back to alignment. So one of, you know, and I'm not sure if you shared this in this, but Vin's amazing at working very hard and like honing in on, on those things. And, but he's also a massive family man and he wants to be connected to all the people that he loves. So he just found that there was maybe a little bit of misalignment in there. And then that was some of the tools that really helped him. And I've watched him do this over the last couple of years where he has a family meeting with Paywen. I think it's every month. And then they lock in exactly what they're going to do and they schedule it in. And I remember even at the beginning, like suggesting that to him and then me not implementing it for a while. I got lazy with it and then seeing how it negatively impacted parts that were working really well. So again, these are just like awesome habits and you know, go back to Jocko Willenick. It's like discipline equals freedom. You could provide little bits of structure just with a simple meeting with your partner every week or two um, or every month and then just scheduling time for each other. Like I think when you break things down, people are like, oh, my relationship isn't good. But the, then going down the next level of, well, why isn't it good? What are some of the things that you could do? What are some of the habits? Like have you actually scheduled each other in? Um, when you actually break down and you evaluate the last couple of weeks, have you actually done anything that – fosters intimacy or connection you know like or is it just all about the kids is it all just about your work is it all just about this and then i think it starts the the more honestly you can assess things and then break them down then you can have better plans and habits to then support those bits and pieces again if they're important to you and they align with you because these are the other things that we often do is that we say that this is really important to me but then our actions don't coincide with that like people will very often just say the generic thing that they think they need to say. Yes. But then you look at, you actually break it down. It's like, oh yeah, I want to be a better wife or I want to be a better husband. It's like, all right, well, how much time did you actually allocate to that in the last month? And then you really break it down. It's like, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, maybe about 3% of my time. But, you know, we spend 60 hours a week together, but 3% of it was quality. It's like, all right, well, there's probably a mismatch. So what can you then do to shift those bits and pieces? So I'm pretty big on analyzing things, mm -hmm. you know, and especially things that maybe aren't that often looked at, that we just think a matter of, uh, you know, it's just the way it is or that's just life. And I think that's where some of those things can cause a little bit of friction when they're not really looked at, you know, whether it's diet or health or relationships. They're generally the usual ones where it's just ongoing. Yes management and maintenance where it's easy for us just to let those ones go a little bit. But then in five years time, you realize, oh crap, I've really messed this up a little bit or I need to fix it up a little or yeah. Yeah. Look, I love this. And by the way, what I think I might do is as we start to get towards the end of the wrap up and the close, I'll, I'll share with you what I've heard you say throughout this conversation and mm -hmm. the key messages that you've shared and what I'd mm -hmm. love to end on if you feel you've got one, is some yeah. sort of really insightful or funny or joyful or a story which just cracks everyone up. But I'll ask that after, after this kind of explanation and then whatever you add to it and whatever you'd like to. So firstly, when I asked you what success was, you really started talking about doing what you love with the people that you love and having an impact. And so you said it used to always be just about achieving outcomes, but now it's about being aligned you even mentioned 
life alignment with your values and your beliefs. And so you started mentioning that the way you do that really is you just need to have more awareness. You need to be more authentic with yourself. And every time you've done that, it's allowed for greater growth. And so if you're always looking for that next evolution, and so what's next? And how am I going to continue to grow? It sounds like your approach is really just to focus on where am I right now? And how can I be the best I possibly can be in this space before I move to the next one? And so part of how you do that is you mentioned the whole life design and calibrate, which you have the memorable knownness, the downside, the passions, the skill sets, the, the whole business strategy for your own life, right? And you mentioned, especially with your father as you're growing up, you learn as a child that you can have great big lofty goals, but if you don't execute, you're not going to achieve it. And so throughout your whole journey, you just wanted to get away from things you didn't like. Like transformation was something I naturally moved towards. You always hated structure. You always had that curiosity to challenge the structure. And so you had terrible attendance at school, but you got the results you needed even if it wasn't the most efficient or most effective way to get the results, right? And so ultimately, you end up deciding, why should I reinvent the wheel when I can focus on the one thing with the highest probability outcome? And when you started working, you did this as an apprenticeship. You can you learn from others' mistakes and learn off others' resources just to continue to learn, continue to grow. You learn so much about negotiations, deals, and communication. And kept asking, what are the things that I have that are unique? And that allowed you to grow faster. So a lot of people listening to this are going to be really focused on the career. and How can they grow? And how can they be even better than they are right now? How can they get that promotion faster than other people? Because ultimately it becomes more of a pyramid, right? The space at the top. And the examples you shared is you were younger, you could bring in a new, and, and there was a lack of quality reporting. Your mentor said you just got to know your numbers and you're confident to communicate ideas really well. Who cares if it's typical, I'll just leave, right? Care about it, but not too much. And that was really powerful. I think regardless of whatever industry you're in or what environment or corporate or your own business or out on your own, linking results to how well it actually helps decision makers is such a powerful, such a powerful process. It's literally the value proposition of every venture, but it's a small idea or an entire business, right? And so you started looking and you finally, like you started up Future Golf as a side hustle because you really loved it. And you found it was a niche to solve a particular problem that no one else was doing. And you love doing it with friends as well. And you finally got to this point where you're like, I've been learning so much. I've been treating it like an MBA. Instead of doing an MBA, I've actually been applying things I'm learning and always learning. And I always want you to be adaptable. I don't want it to be limited to just one view. And so throughout this, you just went, yeah, mentorship, relationships, uh, they're important, but they're mutual forms of learning together. It can't just be one way or I feel bad if they're just one way. So I'm going to find people with a skill set I don't have and then also help them with a skill set or resource which I have. And so even sometimes, sometimes that you're high, you can consider them to be a mentor. I think you said that almost everyone in your life is a mentor. And so ultimately, you learn more from listening to someone without directly connecting with them unless they're in your life and they can tell you where your blind spots are, can keep you accountable, right? They said there's very little in life which hasn't already been done before you. And then finally, you finished off with with a really cool concept, the outcomes, action, and knowledge, where what's the metric or theme which I really want to focus on? What are the three or four actions I need to take? And then what are the few bits of knowledge which I really need in order to be able to take those, that action well? And then finally, how can I schedule it? There's one other point which I just want to share, 
which is anytime you mentioned work, you've often just supplemented the word with freedom. You don't just see work as work which holds you back, but you also treat it as this thing which provides you freedom. And it's such a shift for so many people who are listening to this. And so from everything which I shared there, what's the key point you really want to share or what do you want to add? Dude, firstly, what a great summary. I've never done a podcast where somebody summarized it live. <laughs> I was like, listen, I'm like, hey, this is, this is pretty on point. So well done. <laughs> Well done to you. I don't know if you've got sound, a round of applause um, sound effect. Oh, let's on see your... if I can add one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, that was, that was awesome. It just got me thinking about, yeah, the, the real common threads. Because as you're doing an interview like this, a lot of the time, just kind of in the present moment with the questions that are happening, but to actually see how it all sort of connects was really cool. So well done on that, my man. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> And, and thank you for that. I appreciate it. I mean, that's the fun of it for me, right? I look at all the details, yeah. look at what people are sharing, I look at the concepts. Yeah. I like to narrow it down cool. to try and see cool. what's the key message. One of the things right, which frustrate me the most when I listen to podcasts, mm. I've gone through it, I've listened to it, especially if I'm driving or mm. doing exercise or something. And I, at the end of it, I think, man, there was so much awesome stuff in there. But what the hell did I just oh. learn? There's nothing to actually yeah, action what, there. What's what, actionable there? What, yeah. How about if I'm creating my own podcast? Yeah. So I just say to myself, if I ever create my own podcast, I'm just going to make yeah. sure it's really simple to understand at the end and that you can take action immediately. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that was the key theme. Oh, I'm going to get I that later. That's why I love books. Like the, Again, we go back to the 4-Hour Workweek. I love that book because... It had so many actionable tips and then really good summaries at the end. And like, it was just always in your face how to action the book. So that awesome method on that. Cool. Well done. Do you have an awesome story um, to finish us off with? Yeah. So I think the way that I would wrap it up is for your listeners out there. If you can continue on the pursuit of finding the truest version of who you are, that to me is the game. That's how we learn. I believe that you learn the most about life. The more that you can understand what makes you tick, what impact you want to have, <clears throat> what, how you want to, I guess, ultimately live this life that nourishes you in many ways. That's what it's about. And then I've found that things like growth, curiosity, freedom, having fun, being around really good people, doing things that light you up, that's for me what I really like aligning with, but that might be different for other people. You know? And and I think just having a really open mind to that, that's the other thing that I really try to practice as much as possible is don't judge people for how they roll and what they do. Like people are so uniquely different into the stories that they're crafting for themselves. And it's very hard to control someone and to try to influence them. But that's also a very natural tendency for a lot of people, whether it's in structures like school or the workplace where everyone wants you to fit a mold. Um, so find, find a mold where you can thrive in and that you can grow in and constantly examine what's going on in your life, what opportunities you've got available to you. Um, you mentioned before, like I never, I never call it work. I just don't. Like I've really struggled calling it work because to me that's nearly a negative word. I think work, work leads to nearly martyrism. 
you know, where it's like, ah, oh, I work so hard. I, I do this and I work dedicated 10 years of my life to this thing. And to me, the word work feels like it's got a real big potential for loss on the other side, if it doesn't really play out how you want it to. So I, I call, I, I look at work as just one form of being a vehicle towards freedom. Like to me, um, like the things that I do that would in quotation marks be work, they're, they're always linked to freedom in the, in the sense of, I think I view money as a form of freedom. I use time as a form of freedom. I use material things. I count that in the same bucket, um, environment in the same bucket as freedom. So rather than it just be based purely on work or income, it's got multifacets. Energy is another form of freedom. So maybe it might be that is having what's your own definition of freedom what makes you feel free like do you need like what amount of money do you need to feel free which people do you need in your life to feel free what do you need to be doing for work to feel free and i'm, I'm using them more just as vehicles towards the end goal of perceived freedom now that's still very difficult to do, but that's kind of my approach to it. And, and I think just, yeah, at the end of the day, I would probably leave people just with the same note that I started on is one way to probably mitigate some of the losses is if you do things that you love with people that you love, it's relatively hard to lose on that one. If that's how you're spending most of your time and your energy and your resources and your bandwidth. Yeah. So that's probably my final note. That's your final note. Thank you, Ali. This is a great conversation. Thank you, Harry. Loved it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Success with Purpose. And I also hope that you feel capable to apply some of the perspectives and learnings from this episode in your own life. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to like and subscribe below. And until next time, live with purpose.